Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do not have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts, of sac gifts and sacrifices, and so it is necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God, who found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turn away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Amen. Great, thank you, Anne. Do keep your Bibles open at that passage so we can see them. And let me pray before we start. Father God, this passage contains so many amazing things we're only going to be able to scratch the surface of this morning. But Lord, we know that if we get even a small part of the glory of this passage, Lord, that would transform us. So we pray that you would be at work through your word this morning. We pray that you would be at work for our good and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I am very excited this morning because through a contact at the British Museum, I've been able to borrow uh, an ancient artifact which is incredibly relevant for our passage this morning. In fact, I need to put these gloves on to get it because it is so uh, rare and fragile. I don't want to damage it. 
these on. Here it is. Okay. Extraordinary, isn't it? Now, for anybody under the age of 20 here who is wondering what on earth this bloke is holding at the front, this, my friends, this is called in ye olde English a VHS cassette. Before there was TikTok and before there was Netflix, before there was YouTube, before there were even DVDs, this is what ancient people, i.e. your mum and dad and your grandparents, would use to record and play back video. It's a physical object. It has moving parts. If I can open it up, it stores the video on a magnetic tape. And it's, it's all analog. There's no zeros or ones on here. Now, I can fairly confidently tell you a few things about VHS tapes. The first thing is I'm fairly confident that there are no business models at the moment being drawn up that involve distributing video on VHS. Right? Nobody is planning to go into the Dragon's Den and uh, sell a pitch of a new video service that involves VHS. And also, I'm fairly confident that last year when Top Gun Maverick came out, nobody, and I mean nobody, was heard to say, don't you know what, I won't go and sit at the cinema, I'll wait until it comes out on VHS. <laughs> and that is because this is obsolete. It's obsolete. You see, something far better came along that meant that there was no real reason for this to continue to exist. So digital video came along in full ultra-high definition, giving you pictures that were so much more real than you could get with VHS. And the internet came along, which meant that you didn't have to buy these physical things that clutch up your house, but you could just stream video directly to your, your TV and your devices. Something new and far better has come along, and as a result, the old has been made obsolete. And therefore, it would be a very bizarre and odd thing, wouldn't it, to, to go back to using something that is, is inferior and obsolete. And that's what today's passage is about. So the writer to the Hebrews says that in Jesus, God has brought about a way of relating to him that is so much better than the old way, the previous way, that those old ways are now obsolete. So it would be a foolish thing to go back to what is now inferior and obsolete. So remember who this letter was written to. The clue's in the name of it, isn't it? It's written to the Hebrews. It's written to Jewish believers, people from a Jewish background who'd come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the promised Messiah, and they followed him. And we know from later on in the letter that these Jewish believers, these Hebrews, had faced difficult times for following Christ. They'd endured a hard struggle. They'd, they'd suffered They'd had their property taken away. They'd been publicly shamed. And now, after a number of years, they were wondering whether sticking with Christ was, was actually the best thing at all. 
They were tired. They were disenchanted. Following Jesus hadn't lived up to their expectations. They'd lost so much by following him. Perhaps it would just be better to go back to, to what they knew, to the familiar, familiarity and the, the safety of Judaism with its beautiful temple, with its reassuring rituals, with its, its acceptance with Rome that Christianity didn't have. So some of them were at a critical junction. Do they carry on with Christ despite the hardship? Or do they go back to Judaism? And as Christians many centuries later, we can also face moments like that. Following Christ is hard. It's a struggle. It can lead to tensions within families. It can lead to broken friendships. It's costly. And we're not immune as Christians from the, the suffering of a fallen world. And we can become disillusioned with church. We can have our expectations of what the Christian life should be like, would be like, turned on their, turned on their head. And consciously or unconsciously, we can ask, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Am I actually any better off by following Jesus? Because when I look around, it doesn't look like it. Perhaps it would be better to, to retreat back to those things that I used to build my life on before I was a Christian. The good things of this world, the things that all the people around me are, are enjoying and living for. But God, through his word, says, don't go back. Don't do it. Because despite appearances, despite the, the hardships and the suffering and the disappointments, your situation this morning, if you are in Christ, is far better than it ever could be without him. Why is that? Well, it's because of what we've been seeing and looking at over the past few weeks. It's because in Jesus, we have the great high priest that we need. And in this chapter, the writer continues looking at his exploration of why Jesus' priestly ministry is so much better. And we're going to see two things. First of all, we're going to see that Jesus ministers in a better place. And secondly, Jesus mediates a better covenant. So first of all, Jesus ministers in a better place. Let's look at what the writer says at the beginning of this chapter, verses 1 and 2. Now the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. We've seen over the last few weeks, haven't we, the writers established that Jesus is a high priest. But here's the thing. Though he's a priest, he doesn't minister in the same place that the, the Jewish Levitical priest ministered. He, he doesn't minister in, in the physical tabernacle or a physical temple in Jerusalem. But there were already priests there who ministered there. And in any case, he wouldn't be allowed to minister there. He's not a descendant of Levi. He's not from the priestly line. Now, here's where it gets really mind-blowing. The place where Jesus serves isn't found on earth at all. 
It's in heaven. He serves in the sanctuary, which means the holy place, in heaven. What the writer describes here as the true tabernacle. And look down to verse 5. This is, this is talking about the Jewish priests who serve in the temple. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. The writer saying that those Levitical priests, they serve in something that is a copy and a shadow of the true sanctuary where Jesus serves in heaven. Now, to help us get our heads around this, we need to think about Monopoly. Hopefully, most of you will be familiar with Monopoly, the game, uh, the guarantee of family harmony whenever it's played. But think about Monopoly, right? It's, it's all about the London property market, isn't it? And you've got the different elements in that game that represent bits of that property market. So on the board, you've got the famous London streets, you've got Regent Street, you've got the Strand, you've got Park Lane, you've got paper money that you can use to, to buy property with, you can buy houses, you can buy hotels, you can do property deals with other players. Monopoly is about the London property market, but it isn't the London property market. No one, no one would think that. Because there is a real London that is far greater and more glorious than the, the London represented by a monopoly board. And the real London has real houses and real hotels, which are far more glorious and impressive than the, the little tiny plastic houses and hotels that you get in monopoly. And in the real London, there is real money, which, due to inflation, is probably worth less than monopoly money right now. But you see, the things in Monopoly, they are a symbolic representation of a greater reality, of the real London. They're a copy. They're a shadow, a pale imitation. They bear a resemblance to the things of that greater reality, but they are not in themselves that greater reality. And the writer's saying that there's something, something a bit similar going on with the temple and the tabernacle that came before it. He's saying that just as monopoly is a, a symbolic representation of a reality that's so much greater, so the temple and the tabernacle and the priestly system of the Old Testament is a symbolic representation of something much greater, a greater reality of the true tabernacle and the true high priest who serves there. And it's not that those, the tabernacle and the temple were unimportant in fact, God gives Moses incredibly detailed descriptions of how they should be made. And that's because the, the tabernacle and the temple were supposed to point, they're supposed to teach, to point us to important things about how we are made right with God. They tell us that God is holy, that we can't approach him, that it would be dangerous for us to do that, that we need a mediator to approach him on our, on our behalf. And in order for that mediator to approach, our sin has to be dealt with by the shedding of blood. And all of those details, the tabernacle and the temple, were pointing forward to the ultimate solution that would allow God to deal with our sin. It pointed forward to Jesus and his ministry in this true tabernacle. 
And it's difficult for us to appreciate just how unbelievably shocking that would have sounded to, to Jews at the time. I mean, it's all very well saying that you know, monopoly is a symbolic representation, a shadow of something greater. I mean, it's just a game. But the temple and the priests and the sacrifices, you remember Mike telling us last week just how unbelievably beautiful and amazing the temple was in Jerusalem, overlaid with gold, made with the finest materials, fashioned by the finest craftsmen, ministered in by priests wearing the, the most beautiful and intricate robes, wearing the, the crown jewels of a nation. The location for ancient uh, rituals, the center of their religious and cultural and political life as a nation. And the writer saying, see that? That's, that's merely a shadow. That's a, a copy of something much more real. It's an inferior copy of something far greater. So what is that greater thing? What is that thing that the tabernacle and the temple were a copy of? Well, we're told it's the true tabernacle that's in heaven. Now, uh, Christians in the Bible uses the word heaven in a number of different ways, in different contexts. So you have the heavens, the, the, the place above the, the sky where the, the moon and the sun and the stars live. Uh, sometimes we use it as a shorthand for the new heavens and the new earth that we look forward to. But here, in this case, what it's talking about, heaven is the place where God dwells. It's the place where he dwells in all his fullness, in all his unapproachable glory, in the radiance of his, his blinding holiness. And that place, in God's presence, that's the place where we actually need an advocate and a minister. That's where we need a representative. And the glorious news for you this morning, if you're trusting in Christ, is this. You have the perfect high priest that you need ministering in the place you most need him to be. You have the perfect high priest that you need ministering in the place that you most need him to be. One uh, Christian author I heard this week is quipped that when it comes to choosing mediators, we should pick them like we do property, based on location, location, location. See, we need someone ministering for us, not in a building in Jerusalem, nor even anywhere else on this planet. No, the effective mediator that we need has to be in the very throne room of the universe, at the center of all power and authority and glory and righteousness, in the presence of the almighty God himself. And in Jesus, we have that this morning. And we mustn't miss the, the crucial difference in how Jesus ministers compared to the Old Testament priests. Did you see in verse 1, his posture, he's seated. He sat down at the right hand of God. See, the, the Levitical priests in the temple, they were constantly on their feet. Why? 
because the people kept sinning. And so they kept having to offer a sacrifice that couldn't really cover the sin completely. Remember Paddy's car last week in his kids' talk. He washed it, but it just keeps getting dirty, so you have to wash it over and over and over again. And so the Old Testament priests, they they were constantly on their feet because they needed to be offering sacrifices all the time. But when Jesus, when our ultimate high priest offered himself on the cross as our spotless, perfect sacrifice, he dealt with all our sin, past, present, future. So he sits down because there are no more offerings that need to be made for sin. It's the age of priests offering animal sacrifices for sin is over. Our sin has been dealt with. It's finished. And Jesus sits at God's right hand as a permanent reminder that our sin has been fully paid for. So what is his ministry if it's not to no more need to offer sacrifices? Well, we, we saw it in last week's passage. He always lives to intercede for us. Christian, he is interceding for you this morning, advocating for you. The, the Old Testament high priest wore a breast piece that contained 12 uh, rare jewels with the names of the 12, 12 tribes of Israel inscribed on them. And he would go into God's presence that one day of the year, the day of, to- of atonement, and he would bear the people on his heart before the Lord. And today, Jesus is bearing you on his heart before God, representing you and your concerns and your best interests, your eternal good before God in the true Holy of Holies. And not once a year, like the the Old Testament high priest, but every moment of every day. And it is joy to do that. We often think it's the opposite, don't we? But he's not irritated or put out to have to do that, even when we fail. He lives to intercede for you. And the writer isn't saying here that the Old Testament temple and sacrificial system was, was bad or sinful. In fact, it was a good thing. It was instituted by God. But it was a temporary thing. It was intended to last only until the greater reality that it pointed to arrived. And this is the the huge thing that the writer is saying. In Jesus, the substance, the greater thing, has arrived. The far better is now here. Which means that the shadows, the, the imperfect copies, they're now obsolete. They were good in their day, but that day is over. A new day is here because we have a great high priest ministering in a better place. That's that's the first point. And secondly and lastly, Jesus mediates a better covenant. Look down at verse six. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, to the Old Testament priests, 
as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Right down to the end of the chapter, there's a lot of talk here about covenants. What are these covenants that he's talking about? Well, in the Bible, the God of the Bible is a covenant-making God. A covenant is, is a formal agreement by which two parties bind themselves to each other. The closest thing that we probably have is, is marriage. There are obligations on the different parties. They make vows. They promise to do certain things and not to do other things. And that agreement, that covenant, becomes the foundation for a relationship between the two parties. And uniquely in the ancient world, the God of the Bible makes covenants with people, with, with human beings. I was listening the, the other day to a historian, and he was saying that in the ancient Near East, the idea of a God entering into a covenant relationship with people was just unheard of. You might call your local God to act as a witness in a covenant between you and another human party, maybe between a king and a conquered people. But the idea that a God would want to bind themselves into a covenant relationship with people, that would have seemed blasphemous to them. But that's exactly what God does. He rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai, and there he makes a covenant with them. And that covenant involved obligations on the part of the people. So he gives them the Ten Commandments inscribed on two tablets of stone. He gives them a law to live by. And he said that if they followed that, if they obeyed it, he would be their God and they would be his people. Out of all the people on the face of the earth, they would be his treasured possession. And that is... The old covenant, that covenant made at Sinai is the old, the first covenant that's mentioned here. But there was a problem with that first covenant. In fact, the problem was so big that it couldn't be fixed by just some tweaks to that first covenant. The only solution was an entirely new covenant. Look at verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant no place would have been sought for another. In fact, God had promised hundreds of years before this letter was written that he would make a new covenant with his people. The, uh, the indented text that you've got in your Bible that runs to almost the end of the chapter is a long quotation from an Old Testament book, the book of Jeremiah, in which God, through his prophet Jeremiah, promises that he will make a new covenant he will make a new covenant that will deal with all the problems of the old covenant. This is what he says. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. What was the problem with the first covenant? It was that the people couldn't keep their end of that covenant. 
Verse, verse 8, God found fault with the people. Why? It's there at the end of verse 9. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. They turned away from relationship with their God. The people were unfaithful. They were an unfaithful bride. They turned away from the God who'd rescued them and they prostituted themselves to the idols of the nations around them. And despite all of God's gracious warnings and interventions, they would not, they could not obey his word and remain faithful to him. They had a heart problem that they couldn't fix. And look, the Bible actually has a pretty bleak assessment of our ability out of our own resources to live in a way that pleases God. It tells us that we can't. We can't. The story of Old Testament Israel demonstrates that beyond a shadow of a doubt. The Bible says that if you think this morning that your own moral goodness and your performance is sufficient to please God, to put you in good standing with him, then actually you're deluding yourself because we all have a heart problem that we can't fix ourselves. So what does God do? What does he do in the face of his people's unfaithfulness? He turns away from them, he sends them into exile, but he doesn't abandon them. Amazingly, he doesn't cast them aside like probably I would have done. But instead, he, he pursues them. And he promises to make a new covenant with them. And this new covenant was going to be better than the old one. How? Well, there in verse 6, it was established on better promises. And you see those better promises outlined in that quotation from Jeremiah. First better promise, the promise of the power to change. Look at verse 10. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. See, the problem with the first covenant is it was written on tablets of stone. It was external. It wasn't something that changed them on the inside. It didn't move from being an external word to an internal reality. It told the people what they needed to do, but it didn't give them the ability to do it. But the new covenant is different. God promises to write his laws upon our minds and write them on our hearts. He works in us through his spirit, changing our hearts so that we want to obey God's law, that we delight in obeying his will, and so that we increasingly have the ability to obey him and walk in his ways. He empowers us to live in a way that pleases him. And there's the better promise of an intimate, personal relationship with God, not just for a few, but for every member of the covenant community, not just for, uh, for an elite, well-educated um, group of people, but for everyone, from the least to the greatest. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. 
And at the heart of the new covenant, the better promise that underlies and makes possible all the others is the promise of forgiveness. Verse 12, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. the The old covenant was scuppered because of the people's sin. But this one won't be. Why? Because forgiveness of sins is at the very heart of the new covenant. It is written in there. It is included as one of the terms of the new covenant. And that is huge. And the case that the writer, the Hebrews, makes is that Jesus has inaugurated this promised new covenant. This new covenant that that had been promised centuries ago and had been anticipated and looked forward to has now been brought into effect. It's been brought into effect through Jesus. How? Because of his once-for-all offering of himself. A little bit later, we're going to share in the Lord's table. And one of the passages that we often read when we're around the Lord's table is is from when Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples. And he takes the cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. See, his blood shed for us has secured the forgiveness that is at the heart of this new covenant. The forgiveness that makes all the other blessings of the covenant possible. And this morning, this is the covenant that Jesus is mediating for you. It's his passion to work in you that lifelong process of making you more like him, of writing God's laws on your heart and on your mind, of transforming you in a way that nothing in this world can transform you. It's his heart to draw you into an ever deeper and more intimate knowledge of the living God, the awesome God who made you, who loves you, who sent his son for you. That is what he is mediating for you this morning. And actually, we see the evidence for that, that he's doing that. You only have to look around, don't you? In the lives of your Christian brothers and sisters, you can see how God is transforming. In our own lives, we can see how we're being changed. Just in our life group the other week, one of the members was sharing how how God has changed him, how he has a patience now, a care for people that he didn't have before. That's because God is at work, Christ is at work in us, writing his law on our hearts, transforming us to be more like him. Because this new and better covenant is now in effect through Jesus, that means that the old covenant, the covenant made at Sinai, is obsolete. And that's what he, the writer says in verse 13. It's worn out. It's fading away. Something far, far better is here. So why would you want to go back to the old and inferior, to the things that have no power to change you? And the message of this letter to its readers is, look, I I know that you've faced enormous challenges and hardships following Christ. I know that you're tired. I know that you're worn down. I know that you're disillusioned. I know that in following me, you've lost many things that were familiar 
and safe and precious to you. But whatever you've lost, you have gained far, far more. Your positioning in Christ is far better than it was before you trusted him and far better than it would be if you were to return to the stuff of your previous life. Because that was the shadow and you have the substance. That was the trailer and you have the main feature. That was starter and you've got the main. If you're uh, in Christ this morning, you are in a far, far better position than you could ever be than if you were to build your life around anything else. Because he's ministering for you in the very presence of God, in the true holy of holies. He's mediating for you a better covenant, the new covenant of forgiveness and transformation and intimate personal relationship with your maker. And if you're not, you're here this morning, you're not trusting in Christ, then this new covenant is open for you this morning. That offer of forgiveness, that offer of real transformation, that offer of intimate relationship with God through Jesus is open to you today. So why not investigate that some more? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, our great high priest, who by his death has won for us forgiveness, has brought into effect this new covenant of grace and righteousness. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes afresh this morning to what Jesus is doing for us now, to the far, far better position than we, that we are in now, because we're in Christ. Father, we thank you that we have an advocate. We have a mediator who is in your presence now, bearing us on his heart before you. Lord, we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Chris. As Chris said, we are going to gather around the Lord's table now. What an appropriate morning to gather and to share in this covenant meal. If the elders that are serving uh, would come forward, please.